I Ran the Bank is a podcast hosted by Clayton Weir, co-founder and head of product and strategy at Fispan, a fintech that is enabling banks to provide contextualized, consumer-like experiences to their business clients. Clayton is a leading thought leader in financial innovation and hits on the hottest topics in banking, finance, and the future of payments. And he wants to know, if you ran the bank, what's the one thing you'd go all in on? Please tune in to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's your host, Clayton Weir. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of If I Ran the Bank. I'm your host, Clayton Weir. I'm very excited to have my guest, Dharmesh Mystery here. I do not know him. And this, I'm going to warn you, is the first time in my life I've ever uh, taken any advice from our mutual friend, Neil Stower. So I, I hope it pays off. I'm almost certain it will. Um, the reason I was excited about inviting Dharmesh on the show is he has been building sort of banks, uh, infrastructure and experiences since, I guess, realistically before the internet. And it's had a front row uh, seat for the last 30 or so years of the major waves of digitization and innovation in financial services. I think most prominent recent role um, as the chief digital officer of Temnos, which is one of the largest um, core banking, core technology providers to banks around the world. And now I think even more interestingly is the CEO of an app called Ask, um, Ask Homie, which is, in my opinion, um, a very interesting uh, example of what you would think of as an evolution of the kind of embedded um, immersive fintech experience that we've been talking lots about over the last few years. So um, welcome to our match. Did I do you want to fill in the blanks on anything there? Did I? Uh... No, no, no. I mean, look, it's a great pleasure to be on the show. And uh, I feel very privileged that uh, Neil still talks highly of me. Um, but uh, I, I'm really looking forward to it. And um, I would say just the one correction, because I am old, but I'm not as old as the Internet. So it was <laughs> about the time I've been involved with the Internet since the modern Internet. Let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, not not dark, not Darpanet, and and to be fair, the time frame of which the internet existed in the context of banking, which is a, a small, much smaller subset of the history of the internet, I guess, was the the point I was driving at. So on, on that note, um, I I think uh, for for some people, and I think this sort of is the bridge in some ways to your big idea, but I, I think in some ways. Uh, what you do now might not uh, that the the business might not seem like the obvious next step after sort of you know being part of the leadership of a large core banking vendor. Do you want to maybe explain to us a little bit more about about the app, about the tool, why you started it, what it does? Sure, sure. I mean, let, let me give you a bit of a backdrop because I think the backdrop yeah. is highly relevant, right? Um, so I sold my uh, previous startup, which um, put banks and insurance companies online without writing code. It was a zero-code environment, which I sold to Temnos in 2012, right? And and that was really to accelerate their capabilities in mobile and internet banking. While I was there, you know, um, really my plan was I got my money for selling the company. I'm going to sit tight for a while, and then I'm going to craft up my new startup and then leave. But actually, you know, Temnos was a really nice place to work. And there were some good people, despite, you know, me meeting Neil there, um, that um, I actually, you know, enjoyed what I did. And um, in the first year of putting out mobile and banking solutions, I grew that business 
from you know um, zero by hundreds of percents, and that was deemed very successful. So, for my pleasure, um, um, I got the opportunity to define their digital strategy. And in the digital strategy, I basically looked at what they had and where I thought banking was going to go. And, and, and my perspective was that we had to split the core banking into a front and a back. And that in the future that we would see manufacturing, the bit, the back end part consolidate, just like other industries have, right? That when you're making a product, the scale of it allows you to commoditize that product that smaller players can't compete, right? And that had yet to happen in banking. We thought it happened with tier one banks, but it hasn't really happened fully. And my view was that all of that would happen by cloud enabling that scalability. And we'd see banking running as a service in the cloud, right? And, and, and that's not a new thing for me because I'd presented that as a strategy to NetWest probably 10 years before that, right? And they declined the opportunity because they didn't want to undermine their own brand in banking, right? So uh, the concept was there, and I still believe that cloud would accelerate that movement towards cloud for core banking. On the flip side, what naturally happens in the market is that once you say that you're not responsible for manufacturing product, then the other parties tend to grow and they service niche customer segments. They take the product and then they service a specific segment that's not being serviced by other people in a generic fashion. So, for example, that we would see many more distributors of financial products. And, and I used to give the example back in 2013, 14, when I crafted the strategy, I'd said, look, we'll get these experience-driven banks, right? And, and I can see that there will be a bank for landlords because I'm a landlord today and all that the bank gives me is an account, right? What I want the bank to do is to tell me when a rental payment's been missed or it's come in late, to tell me if some of the bills are getting larger than I expected, to separate my expenses between capital and income and help me with my tax return. Those are the kinds of things I have to do as a landlord. If the bank helped me with that, I'd say fantastic service, right? Now, I used to run a kid's football team. And one of the things I had to do, which you know the other 30 managers of the team of the other age groups also did, was had to collect money from the parents, account for that, and produce newsletters, schedule the matches, et cetera, right? And you know, if you think about the amount of money that's being involved, it may be small amounts per child, but as a club, we were dealing with lots of money. Now, imagine a bank that managed the experience of being, of being a club manager, right? Help me to get the newsletters out, collect the subs, tell me who's late, provide the accounts for the club at the end of the year, right? So experience-driven banks take a segment, provide banking as part of the picture, but not all of the picture. All of the picture is managing that entire journey. That leads me to what am I doing now, right? So one of the case studies is that what's the largest segment we could think of, right, other than an individual human being? Well, it's homeowners, right? Homeowners today have to manage all of their paperwork and their data. Some of it lives on spreadsheets. Some of it lives on bits of paper. Some of us are semi-organized and we have it on Google Drive. But most of us, the vast majority, have it scattered in many places. We have to also manage our finances, which is not just the bank account and the mortgage, but it's also the bills and the subscriptions 
It's the cost of repairs. It's the cost of replacements or any other projects that we have to do. So finance is more than just mortgage and the account, right? And then thirdly is getting things done, right? I want reminders of the things that I should get done around the house. I want to have um, the ability to share information about repairs that I might want to do without having to make three different phone calls and tell three sets of people the same thing to get competitive quotes, right? So all of this kind of stuff is the headache of a homeowner, right? And, and really what the platform does is to look at that journey as a homeowner in entirety and tries to fulfill it through an ecosystem of providers. And that's really what Ask Home is. It's an experience-driven bank for homeowners. Uh, Totally makes sense. And and this idea is near and dear to my heart. So, I mean, if I had to paraphrase it, what your worldview, not just of your business, but I think more broadly of what banks or other entrepreneurs could be doing is you take the painful jobs that people need to do, whether they're small businesses, right, who have a unique to that industry set of jobs, or whether they're some private individuals who, because they're, you know, football coaches or homeowners or whatever, and you solve those practical life pain points. And for doing that in a smart way, you get the privilege of delivering the, you know, or capturing the financial services component of those transactions. In your case, I think probably broader than that, you get to marketplace a wide range of other services. And nobody cares that you're making money on that because you're just making all of these things that I need to get done in this very specific context way easier for me. Correct. Correct. Essentially, we're aggregating the things that you need to get done around the house. Now, those fees, et cetera, would have been charged anyway. Um, yeah. But by volume and size, we'll make those fees smaller. So we're actually saving you money by coming through one place rather than going to many different places. So... This is interesting on so many ways. One of the questions I have, I've always noticed when uh, you know when I'm in the UK, it seems we have a little bit of this here, but it certainly seems that there's uh, a culture there where you know the grocery store will have a bank and the you know the retailer will have a bank and the, and they'll have kind of gone in on this. Um, there, there seems to be at least a little bit of a precedent of that kind of you know in telecom. It's like the mobile virtual network operators, right? So it's like they just, you know, would take the, you know, in this case, the British Telecom Network, they slap a brand on it and offer it. And that's not exactly what you're talking about, but it's the precedent to this idea. You're taking it to the nth degree. Do you think there's a better culture of this in the UK or Europe than there is in, in North America? Or do you think it's the the same? Or I'm just kind of curious on that contrast. Um, I think that it's harder to get something going in the UK, to be fair. Yeah. Right, especially when it comes to financing a, a new initiative. I think because of Silicon Valley, um, you tend to get funded quicker and better in, in the US than you would in the UK. We have far more judicial on the funding side of the things and it holds back innovation. Right. Um, and that, that's an interesting point. You know, it's, you know, what we're doing is um, specifically what I think VCs look for, which is you know, it's not about the innovation. It's about, are you addressing an unfulfilled customer need, right? Is there something that the customer's not getting done today that you're sorting out for them that they will thank you for later on? Yeah. So 
and, and that's really where it starts. And I think um, my experience is that in the US, those kinds of things get addressed very quickly. It t- t- totally makes sense. And I think we have seen, uh, I think the the provisional behavior that shows you the potential power of this in the US has probably been somewhat around because the infrastructure for prepaid debit cards became so sophisticated and there were so many sort of you know program managers as a service that we've sort of seen that microwave of innovation right where like def the i was the founder of def jam or one of these guys had like his own prepaid debit card and that was like you know he brought in a whole bunch of people based on his brand provision to have these prepaid they they didn't have a bank account right these were non-banked people that was their bank account it was based on a kind of offering and a brand proposition that spoke to them and that kind of micro-targeting using that infrastructure. Again, kind of a, I think it's a predecessor to the, what you're talking about, but it's um, an interesting example of that wave of innovation. And so I, I think in this conversation, though, you're doing the very hard work in your day job to go out and understand those unmet needs, right? And you've craft a proposition doing these painful jobs and making it easier for the homeowner and then probably for the owner of multiple homes as a property and you you have your roadmap i'm guessing right that that that's really hard but going back to i guess where you had spent some time on the you know the factory side or the server side of this equation what needs to happen there like what are we missing in terms of tools or ideas or i'm guessing probably even tier one institutions that are putting a compelling sort of platform you know a banking of a service tools in front of entrepreneurs like yourself like what what are the opportunities or the challenges on the factory side yeah i mean um great question i mean i my first two startups were both kind of aimed at enterprise software and you know i did very you know we sold both of those we did well out of those right but but the name of the game very much was about you know accumulating some IP that you would sell on right. Um, but I think today right. I mean yes there is a place for IP still today right. But in a platform like Ask Homey, really it's not about um, IP at all. You know you actually want to produce the least code possible right and bring in as much as possible and that's exactly what we've done right. We've got no offices. You know, I've got, you know, designers in, you know, Bali. I've got content author in Canada. Um, I've got developers in Bangalore. My team live in four different parts of the UK, et cetera, right? So, you know, none of the geography matters. We don't need a physical premises, right? And we're not building software. What we're doing is gluing software together. Everything that we've done is actually on the Amazon stack, right? Now, Amazon, you know, they've got a massive amount of capability. They're nowhere near as advanced in some areas as an IBM or a Microsoft, right? But the support and the infrastructure that they provide as a one-stop shop gets you going very quickly. And one of the things that I've seen is maturity in their platform, you know, at a pace that I haven't seen with the, with the other vendors myself, right? But but really, on the infrastructure side of things, we're able to do things much more faster on, on, you know, real depth of capability and functionality without having to write lots of lines of code, you know, for ourselves. We're not inventing a new chat platform to facilitate community chat within our solution. We're not inventing open banking ourselves because other we can just take that off the shelf from somebody else. So 
So really, our role is as an orchestrator of these things and managing the roadmap and saying, ah, which which of the components can we bring in to solve a big piece of the jigsaw very quickly for us? It's different mentality to how I used how it used to be when I worked for banks, where we built everything as much as we could do, right? And then if we really needed something that was infrastructure, would go to an IBM or a, a Microsoft. Yeah, and I I mean that's a you know, I think Uber is an obvious example of the amount of value creation they had in their business. And there's lots of very hard problems they solved to build that business. But technologically, there's zero proprietary technical in the earliest, you know, for the first decade of that business, it was the Google Maps API, the Stripe credit card API, the Twilio text that your car is here API. Like it's it, it was 10 different off-the-shelf components that just had to be plumbed together um, and obviously the building a, a tremendous user experience and all that on top of it. But it, the, the hard parts of the technology stack were things somebody else had all solved. Um, you know, that, that we, we went through a phase, right, um, globally, where, you know, banks were being told by consultants, you need to be a technology company, right? You know, it's only the tech companies are going to survive in this game. That that is rubbish, as far as I can see. Right? It's not about being a technology company. It's about understanding technology and how you can leverage it to solve customer problems in a smart way, and you know, and implement it quickly. Right? Leave the technology to the technologists that focused a hundred percent of their time on that, because as a bank, we should be serving customers and identifying what their needs are translating them into technology solutions that we should be picking off the shelf and orchestrating into an overall experience, right? So this is an interesting question. I'm actually going to disagree with the phrasing of your premise that a bank shouldn't be a technology, but almost what strikes me as what you're trying to say here, back to your initial point about there being a factory side and an experience side of this, is banks interpreted that advice in certain cases as we should be a technology company on the factory side. Whereas I think what you're saying is spend 100% of your proprietary technology investment on the experience side, get out of the factory. Like not most of us outside of the mega super tier one banks probably shouldn't build a payment hub from scratch. Maybe nobody should, but. Nobody should build a payment hub and nobody should build a core banking system, right? Nobody should build a chat platform. Nobody, like today, nobody builds an email platform, right? Yeah. Build a database. And the thing starts to apply to banking capabilities now. Did you see that? Um, and I guess I'm, we're, we're jumping back and forth, but did you see that from a Temenos perspective? Like, do you think as the core vendors, are you getting better? Because one of the other arguments, I think, to taking control of your factory side kind of technology tools as a bank was the propensity for vendor lock-in, right? Where you'd get tied up in, for example, the FIS ecosystem, and then all of a sudden you were just living your life where you you didn't have this componentization or this modularization of different services. You kind of got watered down to not best in class across your whole thing. And I think that's what like spun the pendulum towards build our own technology. Is that is that changing? Do you think there's it's easier to now kind of grab something I like from FIS and grab something I like from Temenos and kind of build my back office off the shelf, but not not be locked into one vendor? I mean, there's always going to be a certain amount of dependency on a vendor, right? But yes, things have got definitely easier 
definitely easier because when stuff moves into a more cloud native architecture, we're not worrying about what hardware it sits on, what language it's, it's, it's written in. You know, all of those kind of technical issues that we had in the past have gone away, right? And moving to a cloud uh, kind of base solution, I don't believe that, you know, I mean, for, for Ask Homey, we're on a single cloud, right? But that's a choice. You know, at some point, I'll start to see, well, actually, you know, for this component, I'm going to just buy, you know, this product. And it's, yeah, okay, it sits on Azure. I don't care what platform it sits on, right? I just need to know what the interface is, right? And and, and I think, yeah, so technology has come to a point where where we're dealing with just interfaces that are internet enabled, so we don't worry about the underlying infrastructures, it makes it a lot easier to move now. Totally, totally makes sense. I think the other thing that's starting to happen is, you know, with, with, with things like open banking and coming downstream, you know, for Europe um, is open finance. So not just account-based products, but things like pensions and uh, mortgages, credit cards, et cetera, or, 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 or sorry, investments. But, but, but that whole, I, you know, the, the portability of data becomes much easier, right? That solves the other big problem about switching, which is, ah, oh, all my data lives in here. I might be able to talk to something else, but then what about my data? You know, and do I have to need to go through a big exercise to kind of transform it and understand how to map it in, et cetera? I think that's really interesting. And that, that was the pointed question I was going to ask you next was, you know, when we, when, you know, we do this podcast or you get on talking heads on stage at the conference, you would blab on about, how the open banking infrastructure, especially the European one, where there's read and write, and it's, you know, it's hypothetically this nirvana state we've always promised. The outcome is supposed to be that for somebody like you that's making, a, I mean, I, I don't think your your startup is a pure play like fintech or bank startup, but it's obviously to some extent an you know an embedded or an experiential sort of fintech product. The open banking infrastructure, the argument should have been that it would make your life easier or make your product better. You could have a wider scope of services. Is that true? Do you guys use any of it today? Does does it, in your opinion, fundamentally change what Ask Homey does versus what it would do, you know, if you had to launch in the US today and had no didn't have that access? Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. I'm a big fan of what's happening with open banking and have been. It's been pretty much um when I was doing the digital strategy for Temnos, you know, the, the one thing that occurred was the white paper came out about 2014 for open banking. And, and when I read the paper, I said, wow, this is just so timely because essentially what it's, what it's doing, it's going to accelerate what I said in my paper around the, you know, manufacturing and distribution uh, separating, right? And then being a growth in distribution place, right? So I absolutely believe that, but I think it's taken not only time to get all the rails in place and the standards working, um, banks on board, et cetera, but it's taken cycles for banks to understand that open banking isn't a threat. It's actually a huge opportunity, right? It also took, I, being there right at the beginning, right? I remember presenting in like Australia to a credit union kind of conference. It was the biggest one in Australia. And I, and I talked about this open data and they said, yeah, you, you might be able to do that in the UK or in Europe, right? Uh, where you're much more, you know, uh, open to this kind of stuff. But in Australia, 
you know, the top four banks control everything. We won't even take Google Pay and Apple Pay, let alone, you know, do this open banking thing that you're talking about. And I said, well, look, it's not up to the banks, right? It's actually a governmental thing, right? Because if your government doesn't encourage open data and, you know, and as a subset open banking, right, it's going to give advantages to foreign banks in your country at some point. Because these guys will be innovating sooner, faster, and your your clients will want that. So by the time you come to it, these foreign banks will be ready to enter your market. So it's a government responsibility to push open open banking in your country, right? To protect you guys, right? It's a gift. It's a gift from the queen to <laughs> declare this, because it's you take your two hundred million pound program for all of your APIs and your authentication engine and everything you need to do and you write it off to compliance in a world where it would be almost impossible to build the investment case for it otherwise. Exactly. Thanks, Queen. Have a nice day. Like it's Yeah. I mean, look, if if we didn't have HTTP and those underlying, you know, TCIP, those protocols, you know, just as an open, you know, platform, then, you know, we wouldn't be we wouldn't have the internet today, right? And so, you know, the next release of the internet is about this data really being able to be transported and, you know, a new level of innovation. I, I, we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of the innovation and, and some of that you're seeing already with some of the neobanks. But, but phase one was better banking by neobanks moving on to the cloud. So leveraging a lower cost base infrastructure and more modern technology, right? And that's for me like Neobank 1.0. What what we're seeing with Experience Driven Bank is Neobanks 2.0, where they say, well, look, we don't want to compete on a level basis with banks just on a cost base, right? Because as we see, when you start to scale your product set and your reach, those costs will start piling in and 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 your your marginal difference will be eroded, right? So you have to change the business model and the business model you know, in one opportunity is experience-driven banks. It's doing more than banks are willing to do today. Yeah. What is the, do you see that there's an opportunity or what's the action item, right? And I, I'm thinking of your, you know, when you were at Temenos, your customer set in Canada, which tend to be these kind of regional tier two credit union financial institutions. So they obviously have like a geographic focus. Do you think like, if you're so if you're sitting in the bank boardroom, are there opportunities at the bank level to be developing these and and I mean niche is maybe the wrong word, but these targeted experiential offerings? Like should banks be doing that themselves or they should they be enabling you to do it as a third party? Good question. Good question. I mean, I think for a large bank, you know, it's gonna be extremely difficult because this isn't, you know, a level playing field as such. This isn't about like trying to fight one big bank against the other, because there'll be far too many experiences that a bank could cover, right? So you've got to pick your bets as to which are the one which are the customer segments and the customer journeys you want to uh, enable, right? And you may say, Well, look, actually, you know, we wanna we want to stick to our knitting as a full stack bank, but we want to open up to enable these experiences for other people, right? So if they want to do a customer journey that manages, you know, landlords, then fine, because we're not servicing them individually. But if uh, if a landlord that, you know, wants just 
to do their banking just for their for their home as well as their landlord, as well as for their kids, et cetera, and don't want to have to do these separate land relationships, they can just come to us, right? So I think I think they'll, you know, I think multiple models will coex uh, coexist. It's not just a, a rip and replace of banking, but it's more like an onion that will get more and more layers of different models of business ban- of, of of banking coming to uh, to the play. Totally agree. And so on that note, maybe just to try and tie a bow on this, what's the one sort of idea or action item you'd want to leave with the big stakeholders here listening? And so I'm thinking of it. One, what's the one thing I take away from this if I am a you know if I'm a tier one banker? What's the one thing I take away from this if I'm the, you know, kind of the VC or the entrepreneur thinking about, you know, experiential banking as a category? And maybe for those people in the middle, the whether it's the legacy incumbent, you know, technology providers or the people that are, you know, thinking about building the banking as a service kind of platforms that would facilitate this in the future. Maybe for those three audiences, is is there one sort of idea for each of those that that you would want them to kind of go home and meditate on after listening to this podcast um what would i say i mean it's difficult for all three i think but but i think you know um it just goes back to the basics right which is really understand and know your customer base right and know who's competing for that base right and you know it's just the fundamentals of business right um, so if I'm going to stay as I am and I have, you know, my, my, my point of differentiation as a credit union is we live on the shore and therefore, you know, we service the local community. We don't see that changing. We don't see competition coming elsewhere from people that say, well, look, you, you don't have to live near us to bank with us. You know, we provide all these other capabilities. If that's not a threat, then fine. Right. But really, fundamentally, you've just got to know that you're solving uh, an unfulfilled need, right? And that you fully appreciate and, and you f- address that unfulfilled need fully, right? You don't just uh, take one part, which is the banking piece, but you go end to end, right? And I think that's good advice, not only for a bank, but also for a VC that's investing in potentially, you know, some of these fintechs that are coming out. Um, that are me too, but, you know, leveraging modern technology, but also then from a software perspective, because, you know, um, really, you know, what used to be core banking as a full stack solution is now a tale of two halves. And I, I certainly think that this is now uh, where the new core is in the front office, right? And just like the old core used to be just about, you know, creating accounts and deposits, then we added, you know, capabilities like KYC and AML checks and then added credit risk assessment and added reporting and BI and intelligence. And we ballooned out the core in terms of its capability, right? I think first thing is make sure that you've got a split between the front office and the back office. And in the front office, that is going to balloon and it will balloon far broader than what we have seen with core because this is where all of the innovation is occurring and new things like gamification and AI and emotion detection and, and stuff like that is all going to come in, right, over time, right? And, and other edge technologies like 5G and IoT, et cetera, are also going to change the game. They're going to change it, you know, through the experience, right? So I, I absolutely believe that the experience layer is the bit that's going to grow the most. 
right? And I think that's a huge opportunity for software providers is that what used to be one solution now is two. And maybe the the, the digital part of that is the new core, right? No, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's good advice. I mean, it's not, as you said, it's it's that's just first principles, right? Get <laughs> as close to the customer as you can, anticipate their needs and work backwards the right amount that you need to from there to to make it happen. I mean, I think we just sometimes all get away from that in our in our day to day lives, and it's 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 important important lens to always be seeing the world for when we're trying to create value. So, certainly, I mean, I think you know. Never underestimate, you know, the the simple changes that can absolutely transform an experience, like not having to go into your pocket for, to pull out your dollars to pay the cab driver. Just that simple change that the money's taken care of, what a difference it makes. Yeah? It totally makes sense. I think that's a great point to to wind down on. Awesome. This has been a great conversation. I was excited for it, but I think it, it exceeded my expectations. Um, really appreciate, appreciate the time. Appreciate you, uh, share, sharing your thoughts with the audience. Oh, pleasure. It's been a real honor to be on the show as well. So, uh, I can't hear, wait to hear it back. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this episode. Um, as always, you can we encourage you to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google podcasts, wherever you get them, share the episode with a friend if you want. And, uh, thanks as always to Fispan for sponsoring us and, Send your complaints, concerns, or questions to hr at fivespan.com if you have any. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.